you would this morning, let's go to the book of Colossians. We're going to get into a new study. We just got done with Philemon. And y'all should be proud of me. I think it only took five messages to get through 25 verses. So all is not lost and the the age of miracles is not yet over. Um, But that really helped me. Um, In fact, I'm going to have some opportunities to preach when I go to the south and I think I'm just going to give them a condensed version of the things that we learned in that study. I never, when I'm preaching out somewhere besides here, they always get the leftovers from here. So I never, I never give anything that y'all haven't heard. So, but um, I, I just, man, it helped me, and I got a lot of good feedback from some people in the church. I think they let some things go, and um, what a blessing that is. And so I know. Uh, if it helped me, if it helped y'all, then Lord willing, maybe it'll help them. Y'all just pray for me as I try to cram five messages into one sermon. Pray for those folks. <laughs> Lord, Lord, help them, you know. But uh, anyway, we're going to be in Colossians for a while. And Colossians is not a huge book. Uh, it's four, about four chapters long. It's not as long as Galatians, but it's a good bit longer than Philemon. So be here a little while. And um, Colossians is... Another one of Paul's prison epistles, just like Philemon, it's got some things in common with Philemon because, uh, first of all, it was written about the same time as Philemon, somewhere between 58 and 62 A.D. And it was written, obviously, to the church at Colossae, which, if you'll remember, was Philemon's church. In fact, as we saw, they were, the church was actually meeting in the home of Philemon for some time there. And uh, the church... At Colossae was started by Paul's friend and fellow labor Epaphras. And if you'll remember at the end of Philemon when he's given his salutation, he mentions some of his fellow laborers in Christ, and one of them was Epaphras. And like Philemon, when you read what Paul had to say about the church at Colossae, they were very Christ-centered, they were very loving, they were very giving. The church at Colossae was a good church. And this is certainly in contrast. When you read uh, how Paul talked to the Colossians, it's a whole different story than the way he talked to the Corinthians. Corinthians were a carnal church. They had a lot of uh, sin in the church. They were turned a blind eye to. They were doing a lot of fleshly things, and Paul let them know about it. And, you know, I know as, as individuals, obviously, we have our own reputation for how we live the Christian life, right? But I believe when you read the Scriptures, God pays attention to the reputations of individual churches as well. You know, you look at the churches in Asia that uh, John wrote to, and the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to them directly through that messenger. And He told them exactly in detail what He thought about them. He had some good things to say, and He had some bad things to say. And, well, wouldn't it just be also not only to be faithful in our individual lives, but that the Lord would come back and He would find Grace Baptist Church being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, faithful to His Word. Uh, I believe it's important to make that distinction. The the church at Colossae had a great reputation. And so the reason, because there's obviously a reason, right? The reason that Paul was writing to the church at Colossae is because Epaphras had contacted Paul, whether he wrote him, whether he you know, walked the distance to be there quite many miles. We don't know what he did. But he had reached out to Paul in prison 
Uh, he was concerned because in the city of Colossae, there was some major heresy, some major false teaching going on. And I think he was concerned that maybe even some of the members in the church would get caught up by these heresies. Uh, there's two main heresies that Paul deals with. Now, uh, historically, we don't know the specific heresy, and we don't know the specific heretics. We don't know the specific group he was dealing with. But it's clear from the content that there was some Jewish legalism going on. We'll get to chapter 2 and he tells them uh, not to let anyone judge them and observations of days or, you know, touch not, taste not, hand on all these rules. He's having to deal with the rules. And so very similar to some of the things that Paul would have dealt with in Galatians, but also uh, there was some, some mysticism going on. This probably related to the Gnostics of that day. And the Gnostics believed that, now remember we talked about this when we went through Jude. He had to deal with this. And it's where uh, people were claiming supernatural knowledge apart from God. That, you know, instead of His Word, instead of uh, the Lord speaking through His uh, Word and at that time through the oral tradition of the apostles, that somehow God was giving them this mystical knowledge that just came, who knows, from feeling or, uh, you know, some kind of burning in the bosom. We've heard that before. Um, but, it, but it, we, you know, it's, Satan has no new lies, just new people to fool with the old one. And we're going to find as we read and preach the book of Colossians, it's, it could have been written yesterday. It's that relevant because we see the same stuff going on even in our day. And so he deals with this. Now, the theme of Colossians is the sufficiency of Christ. There is no greater... Christ-honoring language anywhere in Scripture than the first two chapters of Colossians. It's amazing, and I'm looking forward to getting into this. But we, we do see a division in the book. The, the first two chapters deals with the sufficiency of Christ, but the last two chapters deal with our service to Christ. And it just stands to reason that if Christ is sufficient, if He is worthy, if He is God, if He does have the preeminence in all things, it just stands to reason we would serve Him, right? We would just serve him. And with these things in mind, kind of laying some groundwork, let's begin reading the greeting from Paul to the church at Colossae. We'll uh, read the first eight verses. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it does also in you, since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye, learned, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We just come to you in Jesus' name, just as humbly as we know how. God, we're so blessed. So much, you've given us so much more than we deserve. But Lord, if all you did was send your Son to die for our sin, we would be forever indebted, and we would never have any room to complain. And Lord, I just pray that that would be in the forefront of our thoughts this week and every day. 
because every day is thanksgiving for the Christian. Lord, I just pray that you'd empty me of sin and self, and God, even in my feeble efforts, with all my physical falters and failures, Lord, with my lack of a mental capacity to even comprehend just how great you are, Lord, I pray that you would bless those efforts. If there's somebody lost today, I pray that today would be the day that they come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, if somebody is hurting, if they're burdened, I pray that Christ would be bigger than all of those burdens today. We just give these things to you. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. I want to preach on the thought this morning of the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. In the greeting that we just read, we obviously see that the gospel had a profound impact on the church at Colossae. And in fact, as I mentioned before, I would say that Colossae was the model church, certainly one of them. Now, what it shows us is that the gospel just isn't a ticket to heaven. It's a life-changing message. It's not, as I mentioned last week, it's not a one-and-done It is a lifestyle that proceeds out of a new heart and a new creature that has been made new in Christ Jesus. The gospel changes people. And so what can we learn about the power of the gospel from the church at Colossae? I initially had four things that we're going to look at this morning, but I realized very quickly that it better be two. We'll probably be here till next Sunday. (laughs) And so I want to look at I want to divide this up. We'll probably look at two things this morning and two things next week concerning uh, the power of the gospel and what we learn from the church of Colossae about the power of the gospel. Well, the first thing we see here in the text is the person of the gospel, the most important thing about the gospel, the person of the gospel. Look at verse 1 again. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Uh, Since we heard, now this is what we need to underline and pay attention to. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. And so we see here, the object of their faith. And we actually talked about this um, in our study of Job when we talked about hope and how hope and faith are inseparable and how that our faith is no better than the object that we put our faith in. And the object of their faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul had heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. That's a very important phrase. Uh, Because, as I mentioned, not only do we find the object of their faith and the person of the gospel, uh, that's, you know, without the person of the gospel, there's no message of the gospel. And really, the object of our faith, it really is the most important thing about us. What are we believing in? Who are we trusting in? And when you really get down to it, when you really begin to talk to people about that, that's what gets people upset. And when I've been witnessing to the LDS, our, our conversations for the most part have been very friendly. And I have found that the LDS in general, they have no problem with a basic gospel presentation. The death, burial, they don't have a problem with that. But when you begin to ask them pointed questions 
about what they have really put their faith and trust in, that's when things get a little heated. Because they begin to tell on themselves, I just let them answer their own questions. And when you do that, uh, you begin to find out what a person is really trusting in. What have they really put their stock in? Is it really the Lord Jesus Christ or is it something else? It better be the Lord Jesus Christ because the object of our faith is so important. I, uh, in my study this week, I came across a story that Charles Spurgeon told uh, to this point. And he said there were two men on a river in a rowboat. And he said that this is the first time on the river they did not know uh, that there was a raging waterfall ahead of them. And before they realized it, they were already white-capping and the current was too fast for them to row themselves out of danger. They were going to go over the cliff. But right before they went over the cliff, they passed some campers on the bank. And these campers saw what was happening and they, they threw a rope to them there at the last second. And one of the men grabbed onto the rope and was pulled to safety, but the other man... In the moment, he saw a big log that was floating down the river, and it seemed secure, so he jumped onto that log. Well, the man that grabbed the rope lived, and the man who jumped on the log died because the rope was anchored to something out of that situation. But the log was in the same river that they were in. It wasn't anchored in a safe place. Even though he trusted in it, he was wrong in that assumption. And it is very possible for somebody to be sincerely wrong. I had a Jehovah's Witness come to my door several years ago. Man, it was hot. It was the middle of July. And if you've never been to Alabama in July, I would not recommend trying it at home. And this, this poor lady, and she had a, a young man with her that she was obviously trying to disciple. And uh, I was trying to convince her of salvation in, in Christ alone, faith in Christ Alone, I said, ma'am, there's not enough good works that you can do to erase your sin against God. And she got really angry with me, and she, she wiped the sweat from her brow in kind of an agitated way, and she said, you got to be kidding me. She said, you're telling me that I'm out here in the heat like this, knocking on doors, and God's not going to have respect unto that? I said, ma'am, you have never done one thing in your life that ever pleased God. Because it's absolutely true. Even the plowing of the wicked is an abomination unto God because they're not plowing to the glory of God. They're plowing to fill their bellies. And so we, we have to understand the object of our faith that we can be sincerely wrong. Our sincerity and the level of our passion and the, the realness of our feelings, that does not dictate truth. It does not determine truth. Those Islamic radicals that flew a plane into the Twin Towers and killed over 3,000 people, they really were sincere in what they believed, but they were wrong. They were wrong. It's possible to be sincerely wrong. But I do love this phrase here in Colossians, that phrase, your faith. That makes it personal, doesn't it? Your faith. Paul had heard about their faith. It's a personal thing. And so the question that we need to ask is, what or who are you trusting with your eternal soul and with your life here on earth? Does that phrase, your faith in Christ Jesus, apply to you? Do you have a personal relationship with Christ? Have you truly trusted 
in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? I mean, if I ask you about your faith in Christ, is there any answer there? Is there any testimony of salvation? Could you go back to a place in time where you know the Lord convicted you, not only of your sin, but of your lost condition because of that sin, and He drew you unto saving faith in Christ? Do you remember that? Does that faith play itself out in your daily life? Because if not, you need to, get, you need to check up. Have you believed the Lord Jesus Christ? And while I'm here, I'll go ahead and answer my own question from the other night. And that is, what is the gospel? I don't ever want to take for granted that not everybody grew up in Sunday school. Not everybody grew up under you know, sound teaching of the Word of God. So what is the gospel? Well, uh, the gospel means good news. That's what the word means. And here's the good news. I, I made a statement the other night. I said, if you can't in 60 seconds tell someone what the gospel is, then I said, I have failed you as a pastor. And so I want to make sure that I'm not a failure as a pastor, and by the time you leave here, you'll know that. The simple definition of the gospel is this. Somebody asks you, and I, I may do it. You never know. I may just poke you. I may give you elbow and say, hey, what's the gospel? This is it. The simple definition of the gospel is salvation through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. The clearest definition comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 where Paul specifically mentions the gospel being the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I'll say this, the good news is only good news when we understand the bad news. And the bad news is that we're not a good person. You say, well now hold on a minute, why, why can't the gospel be good news without the bad news? For the same reason that a cure for cancer can't be good news unless you actually have cancer. The cancer's bad news, which makes it really good news if you find a cure for what you have. So the bad news is that we're not good people. There is no such thing as a good person. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've sinned against God, and therefore, uh, outside of Christ, we're under the wrath of God. And if a person dies lost, they will spend eternity in the torments of hell and separated from the love of God. That is, uh, that's biblical. You cannot read what Jesus said in the New Testament and not realize there's a hell. There's an eternal hell where people are tormented forever because they loved their sin, they hated God. If they heard the gospel, they rejected the gospel that would have saved them. And God is righteous and just in punishing every single one of them. There's not one person in hell that doesn't deserve to be there. And consequently, there's not a single person in heaven that deserves to be there. And so when God gives his diagnosis about mankind in several places, but for sake of time, I'll just mention Romans 3, uh, verses 10 and 12. It says, As is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And that's bad news for all of us. I mean, really, Romans 3 had so much to do with me coming to Christ. Because when the preacher read those words, I realized that when it said that all had sinned and come show the glory of God, that all included me. When it said there is none that was righteous, no, not one, I realized that didn't include me because I, I'm not good either. 
No, not one. That means there can't be an exception for me. And until we realize that, until we understand our diagnosis, we'll never seek a cure. That's bad news for us because the Bible goes on to say in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. A wage is something that we earn. If you work at a job, if you clock in or however you get paid, you're earning a wage for the things that you do, or at least for your time. I know some folks, if they got paid by what they actually did, they'd be in the poorhouse, amen? <laughs> but that's another sermon for another day. Ah. The wages of sin is death. Now, death is not simply dying and going to the grave. The, the word death means separation. There's actually two deaths mentioned in the Bible. The first death is when our soul separates from our body. And for a saved person, all death is is an escort home. But for the lost, the second death is when they're separated from the love of God for all eternity in the lake of fire. And so that's the wages of sin is the judgment of God. He must punish sin. So that's bad news for us. But the good news is, the, the second part of Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the gospel is good news. Uh, that Jesus became sin for us, that knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Listen, Romans 5, 8 is good news. But God commended or God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's good news. 1 Peter 2.24 is good news that Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 is good news. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Um, Amy had sent me a video this week about some Mormons who had left Mormonism. It was about an hour and a half long. It was a really good documentary. And it included a young man by the name of Micah Wilder. And Micah has written a book that uh, Andy let me borrow. Uh, he was a, a Mormon missionary that got sent to Florida, ran into a Baptist preacher who gave him the gospel, and eventually he got saved. And he's written about that experience. He ended up leading his mother and father to the Lord. They're Christians. All his siblings are Christians now. And they were pretty prominent LDS. Were there. In fact, his mother was a professor at BYU. And so um, it was just amazing to hear all these stories about how burdened down they felt, not only with their sin, but with the expectation of perfection. And he said that Michael Wilder at the very end, with tears in his eyes, said the most liberating moment in his life is when he realized that he was saved by grace through faith because he could not be saved by his works. The weight was lifted. The scales were removed from his eyes. And, man, I was just, I was having a good time in my living room because I was resonating with everything he said. I know what he's talking about. And, and, but so we have to understand the good news of the gospel is not just that we can be good, but that He's good, and through the gospel, He makes us good. We're going to look at that more in just a minute. Um, but I want you to know, before we move on to my second last point, I want you to get this. Because we have to understand, there, you can take every religion, every title in the world, and you can boil them down to only two types of worship. There's only two types of worship in the world. 
the worship of the true and living God of the Bible and the worship of self. That's the only two that you have. Now, I know those self-worship packages may look different, but regardless of what it is, it's still self-worship. I know atheists, they worship self because they completely deny the existence of God, and in doing so, they make themselves out to be God. They're the greatest authority in their own life. They get to run their life, or so they think. They're the ultimate authority. Then there's more subtle forms of self-worship in which people acknowledge and worship a God openly, but they have created a God in their own imagination that is a reflection of them and who they are and what they believe. Uh, God was created in their image. They haven't accepted the fact they were created in God's image. Both of those are forms of self-worship. Romans 1, verse 24 through 25, it says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. There's a mouthful in that statement for several reasons. First of all, I want you to understand, it's an exchange of two different truths. It's an exchange of the truth of the Creator for the false notion that creation is in charge of everything. It's a a swap, the, the truth for a lie. But it's also a subtraction. I was watching a a lecture this week on Ligonier, and I was so amazed. I forget his name, but the professor was talking about historically. He said, you go back as far in time in history as you want to. He said, every pagan religion, every form of witchcraft, every worship of nature, whatever you want to say, every single one of them had a concept of what they called singularity. And he, he said their rallying cry was not to, or not a, a dualism. He said every culture, he said you can find a term or a phrase in which they talked about not being to. What they meant by that was not a creator. Instead of a dualism that recognized both creator and creation, they said not to, it's just creation. And so that's what we see today. It's all about the worship of the creature. And I love that phrase there. It said, worship the creature. Worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. It didn't say creatures. (laughs) Creatures. It said the creature. So who is the creature? Go find a mirror and you'll find out. The creature is actually you. And whether that worship takes place Um, in an Islamic uh, monastery, in a Catholic church, doing the Mass, Um, you know, whether it's good works of Mormonism, all that is is self-worship. Look at me. Look at what I have done. God has to forgive and pardon me because I'm so good. Look at what I have done. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a form of self-worship. Look at Self-worship. Now, so when we talk about this exchange of, of truth for a lie, when it comes to the worship of the creature, it's all about you. It's all about your lust, your, your desires, your opinion, your logic. It's not about submitting yourself to the truth of God. It's about changing the truth of God into something that you wished it would be. 
When you hear this crowd today, and it's, man, it's everywhere. When you hear this crowd today talk about gay Christians, or how God is affirming of the LGBT lifestyle, and there, listen, there is no such thing. What a silly statement. What if I came up to you for the first time and I introduced myself as a murdering Christian? Or a drunk Christian? Or a pedophile Christian? Or a raping Christian? What would you think about that? And yet, we do it with that sin. There, listen, there's no such thing as a gay... That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. You know what they're doing? They're trying to get God to affirm them. They're trying to get God to worship them. Now listen to me. God will save anybody. Listen, He'll save the LGBT. He'll he'll save anybody. There's nobody that's outside the reach of the grace of God. But you have to come to salvation on God's terms and not yours. And that is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel is not that God will affirm you in your sin. It's that God will save you from your sin. That's the good news of the gospel. That He changes people. He doesn't leave you the way that He found you. Listen, if God had left me the way that He found me, He would have been hateful toward me. Aren't you glad that God didn't leave you where He found you? <laughs> aren't you glad you aren't the way that you used to be? Now listen, we're not always what we should be. But thank God we're not what we used to be. And when we get to heaven, we're not ever going to be what we used to be like. (laughs) And so the good news of the gospel is not that God would meet us on our terms, but that He would save us if we would just repent and believe the gospel. And so, again, the question is, who or what are you trusting for your salvation? It's the most important question you'll ever ask in your life because eternity is... Forever. Eternity is forever. So we need, to, we need to pay attention to the person of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, the, the God-man, the one uh, who created everything, and yet He was born of a virgin, and He walked this life as God incarnate. He lived a sinless life that we could never live. He fulfilled the just demands of God's law. He died on the cross, taking upon Him our sin and the wrath of God for that sin, and He rose from the dead three days later, the person of the gospel. No other, listen, no other religion in the world has a founder like ours. No other founder created everything. No, no other founder is eternal God. No other founder rose from the dead. You can visit their graves and they're not empty. <laughs> I, I find it interesting that every year um, there's a group, I, I can't remember what magazine or publication puts it out, but they always give a listing for the top ten most visited graves in the world. And every year, it's, it's basically the same list. Elvis is on there somewhere. Uh, Muhammad is on there. Uh, you know, take your pick. There's some that are on the list every year, but number one every year is not even close. You want to know what it is? It's Gordon's tomb, or what they think may be the tomb of Jesus. I think it is, personally. I've been there. And uh, so the, the most visited tomb in the world doesn't even have a body in it. It's because he rose from the dead. And nobody's ever done that. Better be putting your trust in the right person. to be the person of the gospel. Secondly, and I'll have to shut it down this morning. Not only the person of the gospel. I want you to know about the position of the gospel or our position in the gospel. Look at these same four verses when we'll get past them today. 
But Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, Timotheus, our brother, to the saints, underline that word, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which ye have to all the saints. There it is again. So, what does this word saint mean? This, this word saint has been so misused and so misinterpreted, it's really sad. But I want to tell you what the biblical definition is. The word saint means most holy thing. And so, if I were to call you a saint, I'm saying, you holy thing, you. That's what it means. And honestly, Derek was all over it this morning. I mean, at one point, I literally looked over to make sure my notes were still by me and not up here. <laughs> but we're going to hit it again. I guess God thought we needed to be holy. But this is interesting to me because Paul makes a blanket statement about all these saints at the church class. He didn't know all these folks. He, he hadn't even met them. He certainly didn't know the details of their private lives. How could he authoritatively say that they were saints? <laughs> Because being a saint doesn't really have anything to do with what you do. It has everything to do with who you are in Jesus Christ. So we have to get this. Um, It's because of our position in Christ as believers that we can be called saints. (laughs) Boy, I was thinking about that as I was typing my outline out. I got got kind of tickled. I do that to myself sometimes. (laughs) But... I was, I was preaching at a gay pride parade one time. And this guy came up to me and said, he said, boy, you better just be quiet. He said, because God, the Lord tells us not to judge and you ain't no saint anyway. And I smiled and I said, oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> I absolutely am a saint. You're looking at Saint Brandon this morning. You didn't know you had a pastor that was also a saint, did you? <laughs> now, that would be an extremely arrogant statement to make if sainthood had anything to do with my behavior. Because it doesn't have anything to do with our behavior positionally. You have to understand that our holy position comes by the fact that we're in Christ and He has made us holy and He has clothed us in His righteousness and therefore our position in Christ never ever changes. Never changes. When God looks at me... He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you're saved, when He looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Christ 24-7, 365. I was saved in the summer of 1999, and positionally, I have been as perfectly righteous as Christ ever since then, every second since then. That's an amazing truth of salvation. Now, you say, well, Pastor Vaughn, have you lived a perfect life? no. Not, not anywhere close. Have I failed God? Absolutely, I failed Him. And so you say, well, how can you say that you're a saint? Because it's not about practice, it's about position. And as born-again Christians, sometimes our practice isn't always worthy of our position. But still our position never changes. We're righteous in Jesus Christ. And if God did judge us by our practice, we would all be in hell, every one of us. And I've often asked the question, I've, I've talked with several people through the years that don't believe in the eternal security of the believer. That is that if we are truly saved, 
we could <clears throat> never lose our salvation. That bothers a lot of people. But I always ask them, I said, let me ask you this. I said, how many sins did it take to cast Adam and Eve and the entire world, all their descendants, into sin and away from the presence of God? They said, well, one sin. I said, how many sins do you think you have to commit after salvation to lose all that again? And they, they don't want to answer the question because if they're going to be consistent, it has to be one, right? God can't overlook one sin. God can't let one sin into heaven. And so God's standard is not goodness, it's absolute perfection. That's true before somebody's saved, and it's true afterwards. So either Christ covered all of our sins at Calvary, or He didn't. That's what it comes down to, because the sin has to be paid for. Either He did, or we're going to, but it has to be paid, because righteous judges, they don't sweep sin under the rug. And so, you might as well just rejoice, because Christ paid for our sin. It's not like... Mormonism, where Christ gave a partial atonement. What a sad excuse for a Savior. (laughs) Uh, I'm glad that Jesus paid it all, and all to Him I owe. Sin that left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. And so understand, our position in Christ is the righteousness of Christ. That's why we're saved. That's why we're going to go to heaven when we die. It's what brings us into a right relationship with God in this life. And so if we're in Christ, we'll never feel the flames of hell because God judges us based on our position in Christ. What a beautiful truth that is. And here's a secret. Man, this is, man we need to get this. It, it, this is one of those things, if you hadn't got anything else, you need to just park it right here and I'll be, I'll be through in just a few minutes. But you have to get this. Here's a, here's a secret. Here's a secret for blood-bought, born-again believers. Your joy in the Lord... And your service to the Lord will be a whole lot better when you realize that you have the freedom to fail and God will still love you. You have the freedom to fail and God will still love you. Now, every time I make statements like that, if any pastors are watching or anybody ever studied theology, they always want to throw out the label of an antinomianism. And that's just a $12 word and all it means is without law or without rules. They say, well, you don't believe in holiness, and you don't believe in living right, and you don't believe in standards. Absolutely, I do, but not for salvation. Not for salvation. As as a saved person, I have a father-son relationship with God. And just like when your kids disappointed you, or they hurt you, or they disobeyed you, you didn't stop loving them. They didn't stop being your kids. You didn't just kick them out to the curb. You didn't do that. That's the same way that God looks at us now. Yes, as as fathers, as mothers, when our children get out of line, because we love them, we're going to do some things to get them back in line. I'm not saying that, hey, go, you know, Jesus paid for your sin, go get your money's worth. If somebody believes that, they're not even saved. But as a child of God, God will never punish me as a criminal. He'll discipline me as a son, and that's a totally different scenario. And so when you understand that you have the freedom to fail and God will still love you, it takes a huge weight off of your shoulders. And it gives you the freedom and the joy to serve Christ out of a grateful heart and not out of a motivation that light is going to strike you every time you mess up. There's no joy in that. There's no... It's really... It's really anti-gospel is what it is. Now, obviously, if... 
a lost person hears this, they may take that statement and see it as a license to sin, but they're going to have to answer to God for that, not me. That's not what I'm preaching this morning. I don't live that way. I don't preach that way. But we're talking about salvation in Christ. We're talking about saved people who want to serve the Lord. You have the freedom to fail, and God will still love you. Now, there are horrible consequences of sin in the life of a believer. Hebrews 12 says that God is going to chasten His children. There's no doubt about that. Um, but understand, I, you know, we really need to examine. I think this is really important. I, I heard a preacher say this. Well, I was listening to a sermon online. I didn't know who the guy was, but man, he made a statement that it was just so good. And he said, we really need to analyze how we think about God and the way He looks at sinners. How do you think that God looks at sinners? I believe it has to be two ways. We can't always connect these ways, but I believe we have to understand this. We understand that God is a righteous judge. He's going to punish sinners. Um, there's no doubt about that. He, he throws sinners into hell. They don't jump. He throws them. And so, yes, He is righteous, but it's not a personal anger or hatred. And I think a great way to look at it is, how did Jesus interact with Judas at His arrest? Even as Judas came to betray him with a kiss, what did he say to Judas? He called him friend, didn't he? And so I think we need to understand that God is gracious towards sinners. He, he is bountiful. He, he delights in mercy. And He would really save anyone who came to Him in humble repentance and faith. He would do that. But if not, He will judge them. But it, I don't think we need to get this idea of a God who is upset when sinners come to Him. Oh, man, I can't punish that one. <laughs> I can't judge that one. Where, you know, where's the fun in that? He's not doing that. I believe He rejoices just like the prodigal's father did. He's got that kind of heart. There's, in fact, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. And so God delights in mercy. Yes, He's righteous and wrathful and just, but He is loving and gracious towards sinners. And so if He's that gracious towards sinners as He was with Judas, how much more so to His own children? And so I want you to understand that you need to stop beating yourself up for the things that Christ has already been beaten for. If you're saved, stop beating yourself up over the things that Christ was already beaten for. You need to forgive yourself for the things that Christ has forgiven you for. Beating yourself up over everything isn't a Christian virtue. I, I know a lot of people think it's a Christian virtue to beat yourself up over everything, but it's not a Christian virtue. In fact, it's the exact opposite of rejoicing the Lord always. If you're constantly browbeating yourself for you and for your performance, I can go ahead and tell you, you're too focused on you and not focus enough on Him. Not focus enough on Christ. And if you're asking the question about worthiness, are you worthy enough? The answer is always going to be no. Always. I, I had a, um, a good preacher friend of mine called me. He's a lay preacher. He's not a pastor. But he's, man, this guy, he work, he's the hardest working people I know. Um, he studies about more than anybody that I know. And his pastor was going out of town for a few weeks, and he asked this, my friend if he would fill in for him for a few weeks. And he would have done a fantastic job. The, the people would have greatly benefited from his teaching. And he wouldn't do it because he felt so ashamed that he 
He didn't have time to study enough. That word enough is a guilt word a lot of time, by the way, just like should and should not. And I told him these things. And I said, well, let me ask you this. I said, is there a standard anywhere in your mind that you could go to? And you could get to a place and a point where you said, you know what? I've studied enough. I can, I'm worthy to preach now. And he said, never. And I said, so the problem's not you. It's the standard that you've hold, held yourself to, and God didn't hold you to it. And I said, don't you ever turn down an opportunity to preach again. I told him that. And so that's what we do. And in his case, I'm not worthy to preach. Listen, if, if I waited till I was worthy to preach, I would still be waiting to preach my first sermon. I feel like the chiefest of sinners. I'm unworthy to be saved, much less be a preacher, much, much less be a son. But because he's worthy, I've got something to tell you about this morning. But we do that, we, we get in this, this game of worthiness. Well, I'm not worthy to go to church. I'm not worthy to tell anybody about Jesus. I'm not worthy to serve God. I'm not worthy. No, you're not, but He is, and all the more reason to worship and serve Him. If you ask the question, am I worthy? You don't have to guess. I'm going to take the guessing away from you. The answer is no. But that's the wrong question. The question is, is He worthy? Is what He did on the cross good enough to save us and make us right with God and make us worthy? And the answer is a trillion times yes. So when you begin to browbeat yourself about these things, just stop right there, stop writing your tracks. That's not coming from God. And answer, ask the right question. That is, how long is Jesus worthy? Is He enough? Is He sufficient? Is the blood enough? Is the cross enough? Is the resurrection enough? Is Jesus enough? And when you answer that question, the weight goes away because He's worthy. Because our position in Christ never changes. I'm a saint today, and if you're saved, you are too. Get up, dust yourself off, and go on with your life. Listen, if Christ went through so much in order to save us, we might as well be happy about it. I mean, if He became the man of sorrows on our behalf, we might as well rejoice in His great salvation. If He became the man of sorrows, then why are we determined to be men and women of sorrow? What sense does that make? That makes no sense at all. He went through all that to save us from our sin and to give us joy and to give us life more abundant. And it's not a virtue to fight those things. It's called pride. It's called pride. I can't just relax and rejoice in what Jesus did because I didn't have nothing to do with it. I didn't have any hand in that. Just give it to Him. If He became a man of sorrows, we might as well be happy about it. The gospel is a powerful thing and it bears fruit in our life. It has real world consequences. And this was clearly true of the church at Colossae. We see that fruit. We see their faith in Christ. And we see that their position was that of a saint. But what about you? What do you believe? Who are you putting your faith and trust in? Is it you? Or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? If you've never been saved, you need to be saved today. You need to repent of your own self-righteousness. You need to repent of your sin. You need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. You don't have to know everything about it. I don't know everything about it. Don't tell Leah that. I'll deny I said that, but... <laughs> We don't, we don't have to get our ducks in a row before we come to Him. We come to Him in faith and trust Him to get our ducks in a row. 
What a great salvation, folks. What a great salvation. We, we, the, the gospel is powerful because of the person of the gospel and because of our position in the gospel.